I'm wondering, do you know what happened to the old apology line number that Alan had put up on his posters? You've never called the line yourself? No. No. So I called the line. You're kidding. <laughs> I had to. This is right before our interview. And I was like, all right, well, I just have to find out what's behind this line. Wow. And I, I don't want to say it's Alan, but it was a deep voice. It was just a muffled recording with a man on it. I don't know whoever has it, what their intention behind it is. But I'm impressed. You're brave. You are a New Yorker. <laughs> From Wondery, I'm Marissa Bridge, and this is The Apology Line. Attention criminals, amateurs, professionals, blue collar, white collar, you have wronged people. It is the people that you must apologize, not to the state, not to God. Get your misdeeds off your chest. Call Apology, 255-2748. The idea of apology is to provide a way for people to apologize for their wrongs against people without jeopardizing themselves. Apology will automatically tape record your anonymous phone call. Do not identify yourself and call from a payphone to prevent tracing. Describe in detail what you have done and how you feel about it. When enough statements have been collected, they will be played to the public at a time and place to be advertised. Gossip Nista here, your one and only source into the real lives of New Yorkers and what it's like to live in New York City. So is it all glitz and glamour? Where do you start? What should you know? And who am I? I'll tell you everything you need to know and you'll thank me for it. XOXO, Gossip Nista. Hello, and welcome to the Gossip Mista podcast. I'm your host, Mariana Monks, and do I have an Onia New York story for you today? His name was Mr. Apology, and no one would ever know who he was for his own safety. But what you just heard was Alan Bridge, Mr. Apology, the artist, New Yorker, and husband who in the 1980s created a social experiment in the city called Apology. Imagine posters being hung up all over New York City seeking for criminals and those who have wronged someone to call into the apology line and confess your sins. And did the calls come in almost immediately and they were plentiful for nearly 15 years until Alan's passing? On my episode today, Marissa Ridge, who you heard in the beginning and who was married to Alan during this time, has decided to share his work through a podcast with Wondery Media called The Apology Line. Marissa, having experienced almost all the calls that came into the line, from adulterers to rapists, killers, runaways, and so much more, yeah, it gets pretty explicit, not so much in our interview today, but on The Apology Line. She is the host and narrator of this thrilling and true crime, true story podcast. In our interview today, Marissa is going to open up about her New York story, what inspired her to come to New York City, and what she loves about it. She also opens up about her marriage to Allen Bridge and the creation of the Apology Line, of course. Plus, she's going to reveal more on what she liked to see happen to the nearly 1,000 tape recordings she has of criminal confessions. Wondering Media's The Apology Line just scratches the surface with their six-episode series, but I highly recommend it, and I hope we get to see more. Quick side note, 
definitely want to mention this. There was even a movie created called Apology, which was inspired by this line and was released in 1986. And get this, it features none other than a city staple, Mr. Big. Yes, Mr. Big from Sex and the City, Chris North. I had to do a double take, a triple take. But he is a reporter in this film, and I highly recommend this film coupled with everything that I've just mentioned here. Without further ado, please enjoy my interview with Marissa Bridge, and don't mind the added guests who joined us along with their chirping and humming all along the way. How are you doing today? I am very excited to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Thank you so much. I'm doing fine. I'm glad to be here. Happy to have you. So happy. So many questions to ask you. Really excited to dive into your New York story, first and foremost, because I know we've all heard about the apology line and that's like the big topic here today, right? But I want to know the Marissa Bridge story. So the first question that I ask my guest is, are you originally from New York? Are you a native to New York City? I am not. I was originally uh, from a suburb of Chicago. Mm. And uh, I lived there until I was 17. I graduated high school and came to New York at 17 going on 18. Whoa, wow. Why? Like, that's really young. So so what made you make, you know, that dive to New York City at that age? What inspired you? What was it about the city? Well, I always wanted to come to New York City since I was a child. Because I when I watched television, all my favorite TV shows said filmed in New York and written in New York. And my, my, everything I really loved, the magazines, teenage magazines I used to read, it was like published in New York and, and fashion made in New York and everything was about New York. Yeah. So I, from a very young age, I had the idea that I was going to move to New York as soon as I could, because it seemed to me that that's where all the creative things that I was interested in as a kid were happening. That was what I did. You said it so perfectly. You said it perfectly. You said that's where all the creative things, you know, kind of were. And obviously you're a artist and creative yourself. So that is great to hear. You made your way over to New York. And then so when you got here at such a young age, what neighborhood did you land upon? And let's start there and then we'll find out where you're at today. Okay. Well, I started out in the dorms of Parsons School of Design where I went to college and the dorms were on fifth Avenue and 10th street in Manhattan. We actually lived in the NYU dorms because Parsons at that point was very small and they didn't have their own dormitories. So I was in the village. I mean, I was right uh, a couple of blocks away from the Washington square arch. And it was an incredible place to be as a young person. I have that's to say the center of the universe, yeah. the center of New York, but the universe, I think some might say, wow, West Village, next Washington Square Park. Okay. How, how, what was it like then? It was still as, you know, mad and crazy as it is today. That's kind of where everyone circulates. Yes. And when I was growing up, I was born in 1956. Okay. So I'm, I'm an older person, but, um, you know, that's great. It's great to be alive and, and getting older. You, you uh, look fabulous. You're not older, but <laughs> yes. No, but it's, you know, it's important to me to let people know that you still can have a life as you get in your sixties and, and hopefully older that there's a lot you can do with your life at any age. Absolutely. So anyway, I wanted to be a hippie mm. because I was born in the late fifties and when I was a kid in the 1960s and I saw, I watched a lot of television mm-hmm. and I saw the hippies on television and Woodstock and everything. And 
I wanted to go to Woodstock and my mother was like, absolutely not. You're not going there. Mm -hmm. So when I finally got to New York, I was looking for hippies Mm -hmm. and I went down to Washington Square and 8th Street, but the hippie era was over. It was 1974 when I came to New York and it was a little bit before the punk era, but the hippie thing had played out. So um, there was a couple of years where it was a little bit of a lost time in New York was changing and the culture was changing and the hippie era had died and what was going to replace it? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, what replaced it was something much darker, you know, the punks mm. um, and the new wave stuff, which was, had a lot of anger in it, a lot of darkness. And, um, but I got into that as well okay. because that was really my era was, that was the music. The music. So I yeah. ended up getting very involved in that too. Not as a musician, but as a fan. Well, I appreciate you describing those different eras and kind of giving us context there. And one of the questions that's popping out as you're talking, did you make it to Woodstock? You know, cause it's only, it, no, really? Uh, and then they, they shut it down in 1999 as the last concert in Woodstock. Yeah. I think I was 13 years old at the time and I couldn't drive. And my mother was not going to drive me all the way from Chicago to New York. No way. And But I really wanted to go. But Alan, you know, my first husband, Mr. Apology, he was there. Oh, wow. So he was older. Which one did he, he go there. to? Because I know there's been a couple, but. The original one in 1969. Oh, wow. Okay. That's amazing. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. I'm sure he had a good time and some great stories about that. Okay. But back to your story, Marissa. So you landed in the center of the universe here in the city and, you know, you, yeah. you kind of explain what the experience was like then. Um, when, like, tell us, when did you leave the city and what was your experience up until then? Well, I stayed in New York for 40 years wow. and I still have an apartment in the city now. And I, sometimes I work in the city. So I go back and forth. Although during COVID, I really didn't go in except for the day to see my stepsons. Mm. Um, but I didn't stay overnight anytime until a few months ago when the, when the coronavirus kind of got yeah. better in the city. Then I stayed there a few nights here and there. But um, I left uh, in like 2014 because my husband, Joe, and I have a house in Long Island and we used to go there on the weekends, but I was offered a solo art show in Sag Harbor, which is out here. Yeah. It's about 40 minutes from where I live. Okay. So I ended up staying out here and working on the series of paintings. And then I just never went back. I mean, I never, mm. I just stayed. I don't know. It wasn't planned, but I just stayed. And then the next year, Joe moved out here full time and we were working remotely, going back and forth into the city. And, and it, that's, which is what we still do. Oh my gosh. And, um, so I was there for 40 years. So most of my life, I, mm-hmm. I like made an assumption that you weren't here anymore, but you could have been here. And thank you for sharing, you know, that you kind of left in 2014 and you are in Sag Harbor. Can you define where Sag Harbor is? I'm kind of thinking Hamptons when you note that how far from there is it or where is Sag Harbor for those that may not know the city that well in Long Island. Okay. Well, I'm actually not, I'm not in Sag Harbor, but the art show is in Sag Harbor. Mm. I'm in Quag, which is about an hour and a half from New York city. Mm -hmm. And it's in, it's on the edge of the Hamptons. I don't know if they consider it the Hamptons or not, but it's uh, very close to the Hamptons. Wow. It's a little bit closer to Manhattan. Yeah. 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 
it's a lovely, lovely, quiet place. It's it sounds it really beautiful because it's a better commute because the Hamptons is so much longer going all the way down into it and then into Montauk, nevertheless. So it sounds like you're in a perfect area, a little coastal. So amazing. Yeah. Okay. And then so in the city, oh, you say you still have an apartment. Like where where do you come into the city when you are here? Well, my apartment's in Chelsea. I don't want to give the exact location of course, because of, of, of the apology line, really. But um, yeah, so it's in Chelsea and it's the same uh, loft that I had with Alan all those years ago. So it's the same place. And um, my st- younger stepson lives there now with a roommate. Wait. And I have a bedroom there so I can go in there when I need to. Wait, I just got goosebumps and did not expect you to <laughs> say you still own the same place that you and Alan yeah. lived in during the apology line. Um, because one, you know, it, it was in, in the 80s when, when you guys kind of lived together, right? And yeah. It was an apartment, I'm assuming, or did you guys own it at that time? And, and or how did you come into pos- pos- possession of it? Well, this is a great New York story. Um, <laughs> uh, Alan was living in Washington, D.C., and it was the uh-huh. late 70s. And he had been married before me to very briefly to a woman named Eleanor. And Eleanor was a model and she'd gotten a modeling contract in New York City. So they were mm-hmm. going to move up to New York because Alan was an artist. He was a painter and sculptor at that point. And he wanted to move from being a big fish in a small pond of DC to being a small fish in a big pond of New York city. And Mm -hmm. every artist wants to go to New York city at one point in their career. Mm -hmm. So he went up to New York to look for an apartment to rent. And in the village voice newspaper, he saw a loft to buy and to cut a long story short, he bought this loft for $20,000 with a very small amount down and paid it off over several years, but wow. you could buy a, an apartment for $20,000 back then. Oh my gosh. Again, goosebumps here. That is amazing. So he just decided to jump into it instead of renting, he bought, and then, yeah. you know, you guys live there and here we are today at the same place of, and, and does, and does it have good memories for you? Does it have bad memories for you? And we'll dive into the apology line a little bit later. People don't know that, but I'm just curious myself. Well, when I got married the second time to Joe Lamport, Mm -hmm. we did a renovation of the space Mm -hmm. and I thought maybe I'll sell it, but let me renovate it first because it was in such bad condition Mm -hmm. in a way, very basic. Uh, Alan and I had no money at all. So it was, it was clean and everything, but very basic. So Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, we did a renovation and then we really liked it and decided to stay. Wow. So that's what happened. And, uh, and I am tied to, to it. I have to say, I mean, it's, it would be very hard for me to sell it um, Absolutely. because I do have memories. We have some of the same neighbors. Oh my, uh, gosh. my neighbor who Tina Barth, who was in the podcast, who was our upstairs neighbor, still lives upstairs. The psychologist. Us. Yes. She's oh still my there. Goodness. Yeah. No way. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That is awesome. So it's just like kind of like a family and it would be very hard to give that up. It really would. Absolutely. Yes. No, I wouldn't give it up. Please don't. I don't think anyone would want you to or so, but um, moving back into your New York story would like to hear what are the things you liked will like and dislike about New York city? Well, the thing I like the most about New York city are the people. I think New Yorkers are the most amazing people. They are very tough and yet they're very compassionate and they work hard. They've seen everything and they're very open-hearted in a lot of ways. I mean, where I live now, it's very white and the people here are not 
open-minded and understanding that we're all the same and we're all together. We're in this together. And if you spent time in New York, you know, more than just visiting, but living there for even a few months and you're on the subway and you look around and you realize if something happens, we're going to help each other. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter what color, what, whatever, whatever we are going to, we're there to help each other. And that's what a New Yorker is, you know, and, and that's what I love about New York is that the people are really resilient mm-hmm. and the people are courageous. They go in the subway every day. They do their hard jobs. They, they're, they're amazing. And that's what I love about it. And the, and the street fashion, I mean, the clothes that people wear, I love seeing what everyone's wearing yeah. on the subway, on the streets and, and all the art and culture, the museums, um, the music. I mean, it's just got so much to offer. It really does. It's a one of a kind place. Wow. You, again, inspired me in so many ways with everything you said there. Is there a particular area or corner or neighborhood that you go to to spot the fashions or just know it's so lively here? I I know Washington Square Park would be one. Is there anything else that comes to mind? Well, 57th Street is a great place and around Columbus Circle. Mm. If you really want to see some high fashion people walking around, men and women, Mm that's a great area because there's a lot of expensive clothing stores around there and, mm. and you see people coming in and out dressed incredibly well. But if you want in great street fashion, the East village mm. where young people have no money and they're extremely creative in how they dress. And that to me is my favorite thing is to see how they pull together from thrift stores and the dollar store and everything pulling together a really cool outfit. Oh my gosh. And now that you said the East village, I a hundred percent agree with that. When I was in the East village, I think it was some of my first experiences. I'm like, where am I? This is where the trendy people are. This is where everything's at. This is where the people do, do what you just said, put things together and know how and so forth. But I love that. Thank you. And so what do you dislike about New York, Marissa? I mean, you could not dislike anything, but I do like to ask that question. No, I dislike the crowds, how crowded it's gotten Mm. and the traffic and all the gentrification, Mm. all the areas of New York that have been cleaned up and huge apartment buildings have been built there. Like my neighborhood in Chelsea, we have eight hotels on the block and it was a very quiet street with like two and three story old buildings Mm. from like 1800s. And now it's got these huge towers on them. Mm. So that's something I really hate to see. I wish that New York was able to have better zoning so that if you do build a new building, it has a little bit more flavor of New York instead of something that looks like it could be in Tokyo or Abu Dhabi or whatever, like, you know, these high glass skyscrapers, like that's not really New York to me. Mm -hmm. So that's what I don't like. I don't like that. No, keeping the charm and the history of what is New York, not so much these high skyscrapers that are, I know what you're talking about. I think we all see them. <laughs> I don't know the name of them. But yeah, you can't miss them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree with that. And so, um, you know, curious to know, you know, you came here at 18, you went to college here. How long? I know it was probably different then because one, you didn't have a phone to look at your Google maps and so forth. How long before you actually started feeling like a local in New York? Like, all right, I got my groove. I know how to use the subway. I know how to, you know, I know things. Yeah, that's a great question. I think it took about 10 years for me to feel like I was a New Yorker because I got married when I was 27 to Alan Mm -hmm. and I moved in with him and started a life. I started my career as an artist and 
also had a decorative painting business. So that's when I kind of felt like a New Yorker. Like I'm here, Mm -hmm. I'm not going anywhere. Mm. Um, But in another sense, when I first got here, right at the beginning, Mm -hmm. I felt like a New Yorker because it was where I always wanted to be. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I felt at home here and I felt like I found my people, Mm -hmm. you know, I found my tribe where I came from again, more of a white suburb, nothing interesting going on, not really interesting people. You know, my friends got married and had kids Mm -hmm. and, and that's great. I'm not putting that down, but that wasn't what I was looking for. Yeah. I was looking for creativity and excitement and I had to come to New York. So I I loved it from the minute I moved here. Exactly how I felt. And, and so you navigated around it fairly quickly. Like you got the, the, the gist of, you know, I, I know which subway to take, you know, no, how long did that take? No. How long before, you know, you were like, all right, I, I got this. This sounds really dumb, but when I was in art school, our, our school was on 13th street mm-hmm. and fifth Avenue. Mm-hmm. And I was scared to go above 14th street. Mm, why? I just didn't want to go above 14th street. Well, back then, the city was a lot more dangerous mm. and I was afraid to, I stayed below 14th street and I went down as far as Tribeca, which was a very deserted place. It wasn't what it is now. Nobody was living down there, wow. but I kept into my own little world. I did not really go out too many different places. I would take the subway to Queens. I had a boyfriend mm-hmm. uh, in like my last year of college that lived in Queens. So I would take the subway there and come back. Mm. But I was not that adventurous. I did not know the city at all, really, until I, I met Alan. Mm. And that's um, a whole because, different adventure. <laughs> <clears throat> right. Yeah. He had a car. Oh, for one thing. okay. So okay. Wow. That helped. That's awesome. You got to get around you know, oh, to really know the city. Th- and there's a, a lot of debate on that, right? True New Yorkers don't have cars. Um, so, <laughs> uh, I mean, we have a car too, but, and it's for that reason to get over to, you know, the Hamptons or so forth. But all right. Um, thank you for sharing that. I- I'm curious with you saying that it took 10 years for you to feel like a New Yorker. What does it mean for you to actually actually be a New Yorker, like that expression, people have the 10 year mark, others say, you know, what it what does it mean to be a New Yorker, in your opinion? I think to be a New Yorker means that you, you have a certain drive. And you're there to work and you're there to achieve your goals. And you're not afraid, you know, you have some a sense of bravery, mm-hmm. and courage to go out to go out on the streets every morning in New York and get where you want to go it takes a certain amount of courage. Mm. And I think when you do that and you feel confident in who you are and where you're going and that you know that you're a cog in this big wheel of all these people every day, millions of people living and existing in New York City, working, moving around, and you're okay with that. You feel part of that whole, I think then you're a New Yorker. Mm. When you feel just, you're part of the machinery. You're no longer trying to get in there or fit in, but you're there. Your, your life is part of the the machinery that runs the city. Yeah. Basically you're living and breathing it. In other words, is what mm-hmm. you're saying. Yes. Lovely. Beautifully said. And so I don't know if you spent much time here during COVID um, I, I, you've been around through a lot of the ups and downs of New York city. Um, curious to know your perspective on how it differs, differs from other things that have happened in the city, like 9-11 hurricane. And you know, how, how has COVID affected mm-hmm. New York city? What it reminded me of most of all was the 1970s, Mm. the late 1970s when I first got here, because the streets were very deserted Mm. 
And a lot of the stores were boarded up, just like in the 1970s when there was no money in the city and it almost went bankrupt. And there was so many homeless people on the streets, more than usual. I don't know if that's because a lot of people had left and they were just more homeless people were just, uh, you know, not worried about where where they were sleeping. They were just kind of, yeah, they Mm -hmm. were just being wherever they wanted to be. But there was a a real sense of of loss. Um, So many restaurants and shops closed permanently, at least in my neighborhood, which is not a, it's not a wealthy area even now Mm -hmm. where the loft is. It's modest. Mm -hmm. A lot of our favorite little places closed down. Yeah. Uh, It's a little different than 9-11 because 9-11, everybody was so full of love and concern for everyone else. And that was a really special time. There, it was a time of terrible loss, but it was a time of great unity mm-hmm. among all the people. Um, even Giuliani, who I never liked, for, there was a few weeks there where he had my admiration and everyone's admiration in the entire world mm-hmm. for helping pull New York out of this mm-hmm. abyss of uh, fear and anxiety. Um, and, that, you know, of course, that's like the only good thing he ever did, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. But um, it's different because now because I think there's not a lot of unity in New York. Mm. I feel like New York and the entire country is very divided. And even COVID, even whether or not to get vaccinated, people are divided. Yeah. Uh, whether you should wear a mask or not, people are divided. People are in a very confrontational mode. Mm-hmm. And I've never seen New York like that. Wow. Um, Hurricane Sandy, the same thing. Everyone came together. I had friends whose apartments were flooded, who had basement apartments. Everyone came together to help them all over the city. People helped their neighbors and even strangers Mm -hmm. clean up their places. It's not like that now. Mm. It's it's a very different vibe. And I'm hoping that that will change Mm. because that has to change. Absolutely. That's what New York needs is to pull together. Mm. And, and the country as well. It's really, really important that we put aside our differences and pull together. Yeah, 100%. And it has to do with everyone collaborating and doing what needs to be done, right? But I think it also, you know, like you you mentioned Giuliani, um, and it starts from the top. And then, it, you know, right. and, and those things got to be figured out. So I appreciate you kind of giving us those distinguishing times and periods within New York City. And so this is a podcast that's looking to continue to enrich the lives of current New Yorkers, but also uh, those looking to move here. What advice would you give to someone who is new to the city, looking to make the move to the city? What would you tell them? Well, if you haven't moved here yet, I would tell you to save as much money as you possibly can, because New York is very expensive. It wasn't like that when I first came to New York. It was like any other place. It was very reasonably priced. Rents were low. Cost of living was very low for many, many years. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until the late 80s until prices started rising. But save money when you come, (laughs) before you come. And when you're here, I think take advantage of all New York has to offer. Mm -hmm. Uh, Don't sit in your apartment doing nothing. As long as you feel comfortable and you're, you've got your mask on and you're going out into the city. I know they're changing the guidelines again. Mm-hmm. Um, enjoy it. Walk the streets, go to museums, go into the park, hear music, uh, find your tribe, find people that are interested in what you're interested in, mm-hmm. because that's why you come to New York, presumably to meet 
other like-minded people and to do something really extraordinary. That's why people come. They don't come here to say, I'm going to just raise my kids in New York because I feel like it. No, you came because you have a reason. Yeah. You might want to raise your family here, but you're involved in something in business in the arts and in, mm-hmm. in media, you want to do something in New York. It's New York specific. Yeah. So go for it. You know, I, that's what I say. Come here and try to realize your dreams. And do it all. Like you said, all those things and don't sit at home. That's, that's one of the things, you know, I know COVID has kind of put a lot of us in this situation, but it, it is our, our duty to kind of go outside of that, you know, safely and so forth, especially within the city. You don't come here to sit in New York city. So well said there, Marissa, thank you. And so my last question within this segment, I have a lot of other questions. So I want to move on to those <laughs> and be mindful of your time. You know, if you were to sum up New York city, into your own personal quote, or maybe a quote that already exists out in the universe, what would that quote be? Well, I did choose a quote. Mm, Okay. Because I thought that was just a really interesting question. And um, this is, to me, this is great. Should I just read it? Yes, please. Okay. All right. I look out the window and I see the lights and the skyline and people on the street rushing around looking for action, love, and the world's greatest chocolate chip cookie. And my heart does a little dance. Yes. And that's by Nora Ephron from her autobiography, Heartburn in 1983. I love that. I've heard that quote. And, and what made you pick that quote? Like, is it reflective of New York City? Tell me about it. Yes. I think that my attraction to New York is very visual. Mm. When I drive in from Long Island and I see the skyline, and I see the lights on in the buildings, I get my heart flutters. I get so excited. I, I think of all the people doing things and the, the rush. And I, and I know that New York has been my teacher. You know, New York has been a place where I, I fell in love, where I had a career, where I, I've experienced every wonderful thing in my life. So um, I think she caps, captures that, mm-hmm. that, you know, that sense of looking out your window and seeing New York City. And I'm not a huge fan of chocolate chip cookies, but it's the looking for something in New York that, that isn't anywhere else. Absolutely. And that's what I think that, that she means by that is you, you can find something there that isn't anywhere else in the world, whatever it is. Yes. And you wrapped it up so beautifully there. So thank you, Marissa. Is there anything with the, within this segment that I may have missed or that you'd like to share about New York City or New York story? Because again, I can stick on this subject the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> No, I think you you asked some great questions. You really did. Thank you. Uh, so I think it's I pretty thorough. But we both have a, a love of New York, and that's great. And we could talk forever on that. But yes. let's move on, Marissa, to our second segment. I'd like to learn more about your work as an artist, and then you know, kind of wrap that up with how you met Alan of course, and then the creation of the apology line, which is something that Wondery Media has picked up and you have done a podcast on, which is all the rage and everyone should listen to. It's so amazing. Um, So let's start with, you know, tell me about, um, I know know you came to school here in the city, but tell me a little bit more about your background and, and, you know, your creative ventures as an artist. Gossip Mista here. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I wanted to hop in here to ask that if you haven't yet, if you could please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast wherever you listen. This will help me reach more people and spread the word about New York City and those who love it. 
And if you want to stay up to date, be sure to follow at Gossip Nista Podcast on Instagram. Now, back to the show. Okay, well, I came to New York City to go to art school, like we talked about, and um, I was a painter, and I still do paint. Mm -hmm. And I graduated from college and didn't know what to do to make money. I think that's going back to like what young people need to know. It's it's important to find a way to make money as a creative. Mm -hmm. And I worked in retail for a few years. I worked at Macy's and I worked at a store called Henry Bendel's, mm -hmm. which is no longer in existence, uh, but high fashion stores. Mm -hmm. And because uh, I loved fashion. So I did that and I kept painting and um, hanging out with other artists, started to be in little shows in the East Village. And when I met Alan, he had been supporting himself doing carpentry and cabinet making. Mm -hmm. And he just, he told me, you can't work full-time and be an artist. You have to find a job that you can do freelance. Mm -hmm. So he got me onto an all women artists painting crew. Mm -hmm. And what we did was interior painting of rich people's apartments, wow. like straight painting, wall painting. Uh -huh, uh -huh. And so I did that. And um, that's how I supported myself. And then I, after a few years, I got into decorative painting, mm -hmm. which is wall glazing and textures and doing murals and stuff. Cause I had been in, in art school and I learned all of that stuff. So I started to do that and figured out how to make a living doing that. Mm. And then when Alan invited me to go scuba diving with him, mm -hmm. I eventually took lessons and went diving and fell in love with the underwater world. So my first success as an artist was uh, exhibiting underwater paintings. Mm -hmm. I would take an underwater camera down and take photographs and then do paintings based on the photographs. Wow. Okay. That sounds beautiful. And so it sounds like you, you, you started off trying to make a living in New York city, figured out how to do that, you know, uh, syncing up with Alan kind of open up that world of, of the interior painting and so forth. And then you were able to do that. And then the scuba diving influenced you into a whole new world of painting. And then I know you're doing, and so that you, you stopped at some point and, we'll, and you're more so focusing on another type of artistic venture now with the flowers and, and the 3d dimensionals yes. as well. Right. Yes. You've done your homework. I'm impressed. Thank you. <laughs> of course. Of course. And so tell us about That's that great. briefly. I mean, I do want to, you know, share uh, what you're doing now and, and how that has, you know, changed for you. So I did the underwater stuff until Alan died. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, he died in a scuba diving accident. So I could not, I just couldn't go back to making it work anymore. Mm -hmm. I tried for a couple of years, but I just could not do it. It was too traumatic for me. So I really lost that as a subject matter. And honestly, for about 13 years, I really didn't make a lot of art. I still ran my business and I met Joe and got married and helped him raise his two sons, mm -hmm. my two stepsons. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I always painted for myself during that time, but I, I did not pursue an art career for 13 years. And part of that was, survivor's guilt that Alan had died and I was still alive and he was such a great artist. Mm -hmm. And if he couldn't do it, how could I do it? You know, I had a lot of issues with that. But um, one, one summer, my sister was visiting me and she gave me a, a small pot of flowers of cyclamen. And we were renting a house out in this area before we bought our house that we live in now. And the backyard was pretty 
unattractive mm. and no, no flowers, nothing. And I wanted to draw something because in the summer, that's when I would draw a lot. Okay. So I said, maybe I'll draw, draw this cyclamen. I never wanted to draw plants mm. or anything like mm-hmm. that, flowers. Mm-hmm. Um, so I drew it and I was like, wow, like that's, that's pretty nice. You know, I really mm-hmm. like this. And then I said, maybe I'll do a painting of it. And I did a painting of it. And I was shocked that it, I really enjoyed it. Mm. And that really is how it started. And I realized as I went from one flower to another, that flowers are very healing mm-hmm. and flowers are given to people on happy occasions, you know, weddings and birthdays, and also sad occasions, all kinds of reasons. Mm-hmm. So I kind of got into the fact that these flowers were doing something really positive for me. Yeah, absolutely. And so I just made a commitment to, to just go with it. Mm. And uh, in 2008, there was a big recession in America and New York got hit very hard Mm -hmm. and my decorative painting business just dried up overnight. Mm. So my husband said he was still working at the time. So I had a job and he said, you know what, you want to get back into your painting. So take a year and start making art and see if you can get your career restarted. So I did do that. And I did get my career restarted Mm -hmm. and started showing the flower paintings. And then about, well, uh, to be very honest with you, when uh, President Trump was elected in 2016, Mm -hmm. um, I felt like I, I had to do more than just paint. I felt like I had to do something with my hands and get a little bit more of my anger out. Mm. So um, I started making 3D pieces. Uh, and I, uh, flowers, I mean, they're flowers, but they're three-dimensional and now they're, they're more abstract than they used to be, but I found another way to go because I had these pent up emotions and I felt like painting just wasn't enough. I needed to move things. I needed to move materials Mm -hmm, around mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. get physical. (laughs) I hear you. I hear you. And especially (laughs) for that reason that you mentioned. And and so, um, yeah. And so they've become, sounds like, you know, painting is very, therapeutic to you, uh, you know, flowers at the end of the day, they signify life mm-hmm. and, and, you know, and, and they brought back life to you and your career. And that's beautiful to hear. And I feel like I'm seeing like some clay uh, flower creations as well. Is, is that something accurate to, to say? Uh, well, they, they look like clay sometimes, but they're, I don't have a kiln. So they're more paper mache and modeling paste. Okay. Uh, there you go. And, and sometimes I use beads and they also look like clay, but, but I don't have a kiln. So I would love to work more with clay. Yeah, absolutely. But you're doing beautiful stuff. So thank you for sharing that there, Marissa. And so, you know, I'm sure people, listeners are wondering, okay, so this apology line, if they don't already know it, you know, what is the apology line? Uh, Please give us some context from your words, like describing the apology line for those that may not know it. And, And Alan, of course. Okay. Well, the apology line was a telephone confessional that Alan started in 1980. Mm-hmm. And the reason he started it is because he was a petty criminal. Mm-hmm. And he decided that he wanted to make some artwork that would help him stop shoplifting. Right prior to the apology line, he made a machine sculpture called Crime Time. Mm-hmm. And that machine was a veiled confession of his own criminality. Mm-hmm. And, and to describe that machine briefly, it, it had a wheel of chance and you spun the wheel and you put your hand into a tube and your hand 
either got caught in the tube for 30 seconds, meaning you got caught committing a crime Mm -hmm. or a marble dropped out, your hand never got stuck in there. And that meant you got away with your crime. Wow. So it was a, it was a mechanical machine and had a moral story. Mm -hmm. So when he did that, he actually did stop shoplifting and it helped him a lot. So he tried to think of a way that he could help other people, especially people who are criminals and doing things that Mm -hmm. were really against society to turn over a new leaf. And I don't know really when the light bulb went off. I met him a month after he started the line, unfortunately, Mm -hmm. but, or fortunately and unfortunately, I, I wasn't there at the moment of inception, but I do know that he, he did it to help other people. And somehow he thought of a telephone and an answering machine and he put up posters around Manhattan, inviting criminals to call and, and confess their crimes. Wow. And it was a sensation. Uh, I, I think, you know, calls started coming in almost immediately with that regards. I don't know where to pull back from here. If I should start with how, you know, you met Alan and your guys' love story, or if we should continue on this on this direction here. Let, let's talk about, you know, how you and Alan met, um, you know, now that we've given the listeners context on the apology line. So how did you meet? And, um, and, and then what was your reaction when he said, I have this apology line? Well, I met him, he started the line in October, 1980. And I met him in November, 1980. And I met him in an artist's bar in Tribeca called Prescott's. And mm-hmm. I was there with a girlfriend of mine from college. And we had heard that there were some artist bars down in Tribeca and, you know, we were young and we were going out to meet guys and whatever, you know, have some drinks. Mm-hmm. So we went down there and he was there with his roommate at the time, an artist named Yuri Schwebler. And they were hanging out at the bar and uh, he came up to me and started mm-hmm. talking to me. And that's how we met. And I had made a vow to never date an artist. I made it through mm-hmm. art school without ever going out with any of my classmates because Mm -hmm. I thought it would be too hard for two artists to be together. Wow. And so what? Yeah. Never say never. Convince you. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I know. Never say never. Uh, I'm living proof of that. Uh, He was just such a fascinating person that Mm -hmm. I was pretty bowled over from the first night I met him. And he told me about the apology line at that first meeting, but I didn't really understand what he was talking about Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. I did not have an answering machine. That was new technology. Mm. I didn't know anybody that had one. And I really didn't understand it until about a week later when he played some of the tapes that came in. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. when he played the tapes, I got it immediately. Wow. Okay. So Alan... Well, thank you for sharing how you met. You know, it sounds like a very, I don't want to say it's very New York centric story. So you (laughs) met at a bar at at an artist, you know, bar more specifically, and, you know, love at first sight, uh, or at least attachment to Mm -hmm. one another at first sight, you know, and then so he drops this apology line with a new technology. Thank you for giving context to, you know, the, the, the voicemail recording kind of being newer. So it sounds like Alan was almost like what they call today, an influencer, you know, the social media, the influencers mm-hmm. that like he saw the opportunity and, you know, started something with it and, and the apology line. And so, as you noted, he started getting a lot of calls in into the apology line. Tell us, tell us about, you know, how the apology line evolved. Well, he did get calls from the first night. You're right. And mm-hmm. it grew exponentially from mm-hmm. the beginning. So it, At first he would poster around Manhattan, but within a week, 
someone wrote a newspaper article about it mm-hmm. and that was syndicated nationally. So wow. he got calls from around the country and the media picked up his story all 15 years that it ran. There was always media contacting him. There was, he did hundreds of radio interviews. He did mm-hmm. uh, TV news shows. He did print interviews. Um, he published a magazine the last two years of his life. So wow. that was the, the engine that kept the apology line in the public's eye and that kept mm-hmm. it, uh, kept people calling because there was mm-hmm. no internet back then. Yep. Mm-hmm. The internet really like early nineties were like the earliest kind of home computers. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there was, ha- there had to be a way to, to keep people uh, abreast of it. And that was it. He used newspapers, radio, television. That is crazy that it got picked up like yeah. very quickly and it kind of went, you know, worldwide in a sense. And so it did. You, you were getting a lot of unique calls, I'm sure. And there's some that have been notable and pointed on the apology line that you, you know, share the story of on Wondering Media, which we'll dive into. But off the top of your head, can you name some or like just kind of share some of the, the crazy stories that came in? Well, uh, one of the first stories that came in was, which we talk about in the podcast, was mm-hmm. um, a guy named Mike D who said he had uh, picked up homosexuals, took them to their apartments, beat them up and robbed them. Mm-hmm. And he said, and he even killed one. And that corresponded exactly to a recent crime that had happened in New York City oh. that was published in the Daily News, I believe. And there were two homosexual men who were found in their apartment. One was killed. One was just severely beaten. Mm -hmm. So the police got involved in the apology line right away. This was before I even knew him. So this was like in the first two weeks of the line. Mm -hmm. So it became um, something that got out of control very Mm -hmm. quickly. And I think Alan was always playing catch up with it. He tried to educate himself and read books on psychology and the criminal minds and all of that, but it was a, it was always a catch up. People, people just throw things at you that you you don't expect. Um, And and another early call was a a teenage runaway who said she was 15 and saw one of Alan's posters at Times Square. And she called because she was feeling so Mm -hmm. alone and she just wanted to tell her story Mm -hmm. to people, you know, these anonymous listeners. Um, And, you know, there was funny things too. I mean, a, a young boy saying that he, you know, couldn't stop pulling the bra strap of the girl sitting in front of him oh in school. And, you know, it, I, I don't want to paint the picture that it was all darkness mm-hmm. and all really heavy stuff, but there was a lot of heavy stuff because back then there was, there was no Facebook, there was no mm-hmm. social media. So mm-hmm. if you didn't want to go to your priest or minister or uh, go to a psychologist, not everybody could afford it back then. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. going to a therapist was a lot more expensive than it is mm-hmm. now. And there weren't very many of them. So it was a real outlet for people, a way for them to express themselves. And um, so it just grew, you know, it grew to be, you know, I don't know how many calls, millions of calls, I would assume. Wow. um, By the end of the time. I don't even know how Alan or you kept up, you know, Um, and and I know by the apology line that he liked to just let them roll as you guys were home or sleeping through the night. That was Mm -hmm. one thing. So, I mean, do any of these voices and and stories ever, you know, haunt you or come back (laughs) to you, Marissa, you know, or, or is it just it's gone off of your mind? No, no, I still, I still think about them um, yeah. uh, a lot. Um, 
because there's still so many. I mean, the the Apology Line podcast mm-hmm. just scratched the surface. We have there's so many. I have a thousand over a thousand cassette tapes of calls. Yes, so, so- which are ninety minutes long. So I have a lot of material, and um, but I have to say the person that sticks with me the most is obviously Richie, mm-hmm. the serial killer, mm-hmm. who we talk about in the podcast. It still hurts, you know mm-hmm. that. Um, I, I don't want to get into too, mu- too much detail in case people listen to the podcast, mm-hmm. but of course, th- this was a guy that called for five years mm-hmm. and purported to be a serial killer of men uh, that he would pick up on Times Square and around New York City. And um, mm-hmm. Alan got very, very involved with him. And uh, it was a very difficult time for me, mm-hmm. for our marriage. And I and I still wish that he had never called. Mm. But, you know, that's just one of the things I, I wish had never happened. Absolutely. But, you know, you do, as you mentioned, have all these limitless audio tapes and you mm-hmm. have, you know, decided to share the story of the apology line and Alan Bridges story, who is your ex, well, your husband, um, your late husband. And, um, you know, what, what made you want to share your story and Alan's story with Wondering Media and the apology line? Please give us some insight on that, Marissa. Well, Alan died very suddenly in a scuba diving accident. And Mm -hmm. I felt like he had not really finished what he had set out to do. I mean, in some ways, yes, he did because he died. So it was finished. But in another sense, I know he wanted more recognition for his work. Mm -hmm. He was anonymous. So really he had no personal recognition for his work at all. Mm -hmm. No one knew his real name. Mm -hmm. He was always known as Mr. Apology. Mm -hmm. So, but I knew what he wanted. So for the past 25 years, I tried to get his work out to the public again. Mm -hmm. Uh, Someone tried writing a feature film. Mm -hmm. Uh, Someone wanted to do a documentary. Someone wanted to write a play. And Mm -hmm. for various reasons, nothing panned out. Mm -hmm. And the person that was writing the play uh, about five years ago, our relationship ended. He he just couldn't finish it. Mm -hmm. He said it was just too much work to do alone but he didn't want to share the workload with anybody. Mm-hmm. So he kind of came to a dead end. Wow. And at that point I'd, I'd had an agent because the the playwright had uh, had an agent and gotten that agent got in touch with me. Mm-hmm. So I was using him as an agent. And about three years ago, he said to me, what do you want to do now? And by then I had started listening to podcasts mm-hmm. and I thought, this is it. When I first heard my first podcast was serial mm. and when I heard that podcast and heard like, it's just these lawyers talking these people and it should be the most boring thing in the world, but mm-hmm. it is fascinating. Is it? Okay. And I thought, Oh, it is so fascinating. So I thought, Oh my gosh, if this is a big hit, uh-huh. people will, will just freak out over the apology line mm-hmm. because it is the first podcast. It was the first media where people could call mm-hmm. and talk to each other. Mm-hmm. So I told my agent, I want to do a podcast and I want to do it myself. I want to, I want to host it because Mm -hmm. every other thing that people have tried to do has never panned out and I was not involved in it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I had, I said, I'm going to be involved in this. And so he um, shopped it around and we met with Wondery. We went to LA and met with Wondery and they loved the idea. Mm. So it, you know, it, we, it took about a year to get started, but then we, we started working on it in January, 2020. 
No, maybe about six months. Took us about six months. Okay. And then we finished it. I mean, right when they broadcast it, we were still working on the last episodes. That's how crazy it was. Oh my gosh. It was insane. It wasn't, I would never want to do it again. (laughs) It it takes a lot of work. Yes. The the podcasting, especially you being the host at the forefront and having, I'm sure to be involved in a lot of the research and audios and so forth. Well, I'm so happy that, you know, you came across Wondery Media after all these years of trying, it deserves to be shared. Uh, You know, I came across it because I'm a New York fanatic and I think I was looking up for New York stuff. And I'm also a, a crime uh, junkie fanatic, fanatic. Oh, wow. <laughs> like um, in the sense of podcasts and, and binging and even forensic files and all these things. So it was the perfect thing for me to come across. Right. And I loved it. And so I'm, again, this brings me back to you being on the show and being grateful to have you to share the story. So appreciate that, Marissa. And so wondering media, Biggest, one of the biggest podcast platforms out there, you're sharing the Allen Bridge story. And so, you know, you noted earlier that it was a different time then. He was an innovator in the times with regards to it being kind of like the first podcast, first audio sharing. Do, do you think it would have worked in a time like this? You know, because back then there wasn't cell phones, there wasn't social media, there wasn't kind of ways that you could be anonymous. Right. So how do you think the landscape has changed that? Well, I think it's changed a lot. Uh, People have tried to start apology lines over the years since Alan's death, and they never last. Mm. And I think one of the reasons they don't last is because you have to commit so much of yourself to it the way he did. You really have to give it a lot of time and attention. And it's hard to do that. Very few people Mm -hmm. manage to wrap their world around an art project the way Alan did. Mm. But the other thing is that there are so many other ways to connect with people now. Uh, Mm -hmm. There's texting, there's Facebook, there's Instagram, there's, there's everything. I mean, and those are only the ones I use. I know there's a million other ones. There's TikTok. I mean, you all know better (laughs) than I do. Um, But you know, what's interesting is now there's Clubhouse, which has sort of come around to an audio only format. And I think that's kind of interesting because people do like to hear each other's voices. Uh, So uh, we'll see. I mean, Mm -hmm. I think that it's always worth trying. I think if someone really feels strongly that they want to run an apology line or a confession line or or anything, they should do it. Because Mm -hmm. if you feel passionate about something and you want to help people, then then give it a try. But be committed, like you said, because it takes a lot of work. Mm -hmm. And then so again, with limitless audio tapes so much more to share about the apology line what is the hope for it marissa for it's it evolving into into the universe and and moving forward with alan bridge's legacy well there's two directions to go with it Mm -hmm. one is to to broadcast more of alan's archive tape which i really want to do and uh structure shows around his, well, he actually created program tapes. Mm. Uh, there's about 250 program tapes, where, which are his edited programs that he broadcast every two weeks over the telephone. Mm-hmm. So we have that. Mm-hmm. Um, the other direction is to start a new apology line, which uh, Wondery is interested in doing. And I'm not as interested in doing that because I've done that with Alan and I don't feel like I need to do that again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm not really sure what's going to happen. I will, I hope to find a place to do the archive yeah, show. Absolutely. Um, it may be with Wondery. It may not be with Wondery. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that's where we're at right now. We're kind of 
in discussions about that. And we have a little bit, I mean, I support anyone starting an apology or confession line, but I don't know if I want to be, I don't want to be the person to do it. Mm. Um, but I would be a support person for it. Thank you so much for sharing, you know, where you're hoping the apology line goes into the future here. I'm excited to see those archive tapes of Alan um, in any way or format that you put something out. I'm there and everyone should go tune in to the apology line on Wondery and, and listen to Marissa and Alan's amazing story. Is there anything here within you know, I could talk about it forever. There's so much to share, but is there anything within the apology line story and, and your background that I may have missed that you'd kind of like to share? I think the only thing that uh, I might want to share is, is a little bit more about Alan's work with the apology line is that he really believed in people mm. and he really believed in, in the good of people. And I think that let's keep that going. Mm. I mean, I think that I'm just going to reiterate what I said before, which, which is we really need to have more empathy for each other and more compassion and understanding. And I think that's one thing that Alan had a lot of and that the apology line helped people understand each other much better than a lot of other social media even does now, mm. because there was a lot of sincerity in it and a lot of depth. And and I just like people to be a little bit more unified and, and cut your neighbor some slack and just be a little nicer and more compassionate to your fellow human. Beautifully, beautifully wrapped there, Marissa. Thank you so much. Gossip Mista here. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. As noted in the beginning, I made a call to the original Apology Line telephone number. And what did I hear on the other side? I'm giving you a sneak peek here in case you don't want to call it yourself. Please note that since calling, it has changed. There has been other recordings every time you pick up to call the number, but with the same voice. I don't know who runs this. Maybe we'll find out in the future, but here is what I heard. Basically, the heat got to me is all there was to it, but uh, I, think I, I think I almost completely passed out. I mean, I feel like I turned around and turned again. And- Within our third segment, still staying on the apology line, I I, kind of like to um, ask some more specific tips for the listeners uh, with regards to the apology line. And so um, with you given the okay that someone can start an apology line, but having known that many have failed, is it even possible Mm -hmm. to start one? And, you know, what kind would be possible? Is a confessional to criminals, is that even possible still? Or or what is? Um, It's hard to say. I mean, I think that, I I think that there's a lot of pain in the world. I think people always have a lot of pain, whether they're an actual criminal Mm -hmm. uh, or they're just, you know, your average 
you know, law-abiding citizen who has, you know, failed in, in romance or who's had loss of, you know, loved ones, family members, uh, financial problems, um, emotional, psychological problems. I, I think that there, there's always room for a space for, to take in those people mm. and help them mm -hmm. just by letting them talk and letting them vent. And I think, you know, hardened criminals also need help. They really need help. I mean, we don't give them much sympathy, but they are human beings and they're there. They became criminals because they have a lot of problems and yeah. whether it's poverty or, you know, mental illness or whatever it is. So I think there's room for people to help all different types of people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in terms of uh, apologizing, I think that we don't do enough of it in our culture and just general apologizing aside from you know, talking about your own, our own problems. I think that that's something that's really worthwhile doing as well. Um, mm -hmm. In terms of, of how it could be successful, I really have to bring it back to the person that's doing it mm -hmm. and, and their commitment and, and they'll figure it out, mm -hmm. you know, but if they really have a true heart and they're willing to do the work, mm -hmm. then I think it could be successful. Um, but you'll, we'll have to see. Yep, you know? we'll have to see. Perfectly said there. And, and so you noted earlier that Alan did what, I wouldn't call it old school, but maybe because there's promotions in other ways now that, you know, media and technology is involved, was, he was doing flyers, uh, you know, something that is very prominent here in New York, uh, especially back then. And he was very successful at that. And, um, you know, uh, can you give us some tips on, if you think that's still successful, where Alan went to put these at, because um, I'm curious about that. And, and let's just start with that. Well, he put them up in subways and he put them up on uh, street, street lamps all over the city mm -hmm. on the sides of buildings, really wherever he could get away with it. <laughs> um, and he would go to areas where he thought that there would be more criminals or more people, mm -hmm. more young people, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. East Village, Tribeca, you know, uptown, Upper West Side, uh, not so much like, you know, Midtown or the fancy areas of New York, mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. in the, the areas where like more real people hang out mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. not people that, you know, have all these, like have a facade built so that they're not going to, you know, talk to a phone line yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, mm -hmm. That everybody would call the line, right? but to, where he thought people who lived would, who would call the line. Okay. So I don't, here's the thing. So, and I'm sure others are thinking, I guess we don't know the laws of New York of whether you could just put flyers up here and there without getting a fine or something like that. Um, I don't know if it was the case then or the case now, but I think that's my only concern, right? Like if you put so many and your numbers on there, it might come back to you in some way. Well, that's the thing. You don't have anonymity anymore mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in this world. Yep. And that's the problem. Back then, the police didn't care mm -hmm. what you put up. Mm. And you could have an unlisted phone number. And really, it was hard for people to find out who who had an unlisted number. Yeah. Very hard. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And now you can find out anything about anybody. So that's a problem. You know, that is a problem for starting an apology line. It might not be a problem for other types of lines. Mm -hmm. But for the apology line, I think it is a problem. But with that being said... You know, I um, I'm wondering, do you know what happened to the old apology line number that Alan had put up on his posters? I I know part of the story. Um, mm -hmm. After Alan died, 
um, there was a woman named V, her, that was her pseudonym, mm -hmm. who was a caller on the line the last few years, a very active caller, very active in the community. And she actually volunteered to help Alan with the magazine. So we knew her, we met her in person, mm -hmm. um, like the last year or so of Alan's life. So after he died, she volunteered to start a new apology line, calling it Apologia, because she was mm -hmm. a woman and she didn't want to have the same exact line. Mm -hmm. And she took the phone number. Okay. She took the 255-2748 phone number. And then she stopped paying the phone bill mm. after a year or two. I'm not sure how. I didn't I didn't get involved with the apologia line. I just mm -hmm. I was grieving and I couldn't do it. Yeah. Of course. But I heard from her that she stopped paying the phone bill. She had no money and the the phone company like took it back. Mm. I don't know after that what happened to it. But you, I feel no, and I I don't know if someone has it. They probably got thousands of calls from people. Yeah, you've never really called the to. line yourself. No, no. Okay, so I called the line. You're kidding! <laughs> I had to. <laughs> yes, I was like, oh my goodness, is Marissa gonna pick up? This is right before our interview, and I was like, all right, well, I just have to find out what's behind this line. Um, you know, who owns it or what's the deal with it? And it was a recording, and it was a man. And I, I don't want to say it's Alan, but it was a deep voice and it was just muffled talkings of someone. Um, I don't think it's an actual person, but it's a recording because I was like, hello. I actually said hello, scared of what might come at me, but um, they didn't speak back. It was just a muffled recording with a man on it. So I don't know wow. whoever has it, what their intention behind it is, but um that, that's that's what it is. Wow, that's amazing. The 212 number. The 212-255-2748. Wow. Yes. Wow. <laughs> I had to do my research, uh, you know. <laughs> and so I did want to share that with you too, if you hadn't done that, Marissa. But um given I'm impressed. About you. I'm very impressed. <laughs> You're brave. You. you are a New Yorker. <laughs> I'm telling you, I, I am. Um, I, don't, I don't think many people would believe me, but I am. And so um, with that being said, uh, Marissa, I have ventured on to starting some type of hotline, not apology line, but a New York centric hotline where, you know, I want to encourage um, those who love New York, those who either live here, uh, are natives, have traveled here, have some sort of story about the city that is a moment that can only happen in New York, you know, whether you're on the subway, um, whatever it is, there's only moments that happen here. I want them to share it on this line so that I can share these moments with others to inspire others of, you know, the magic of New York. What do you think of that? Do you think that's possible to do? Um, what, what do you think would happen having something like this, this day and age? I think it's a great idea. I think it's a great idea. And I think that people would use it. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Like I said before, I think people are coming around to more of an audio communication now. It's a new thing. Mm -hmm. People just speaking over, you know, the telephone. It's an old thing that's sort of coming back around again. I think it's a great idea. And you could use some of the calls on your podcast if they were really interesting. Yes. You know, or incorporate them in your podcast. It would be a natural thing. Absolutely. That's the intention. I, I'm going to do a segment that shows, you know, all of the 
voicemails that have come in from these individuals sharing their stories so that the podcast listeners, you know, can hear these stories and be inspired yeah. by them. I think it's got legs. I really do. And I, I think, you know, you have to just keep going with a little bit more. I love that. That's a good tip. I'm excited. I'm very excited. One, to have to have this conversation with you, Marissa, for you to share more about the apology line with my listeners. Really, you know, the, the insights of, of Alan's brain and how he worked and how the apology line worked, how you were there with him and helped create this, this huge thing that I feel is only a beginning. So thank, oh, thank you. you. Thank you. Yeah. I really appreciate your kind words. I do. It's wonderful. Oh, of course. Thank you, Marissa. But before I let you go, would you mind playing this New York Minute segment where you say the first thing that comes to your mind about um, it's New York related questions? Really quick, really fun. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Okay. You seem hesitant, but the no, first no thing, just the first thing that comes to my mind, I'm going to say. Yes, please. Okay. All okay. right. Here we go. Favorite New York borough? Manhattan. Favorite New York neighborhood? East Village. Favorite New York food? and or any specific restaurant? Pizza, Waldi's Pizza on 6th Avenue and 27th Street. Ooh, Best pizza okay. in New York. Perfect, all right. Favorite season in New York? Spring. Favorite New York tourist destination? Battery Park. Favorite non-tourist destination? A place that, what do you like to go to or that's not so common? Oh, that's a great question. Um, there's a church on 26th Street, I can't remember the name, but a church, a quiet church. Favorite holiday in the city? New Year's. New Year's. I haven't gotten that one. I love it. Okay. Favorite NYC movie and or television shows? I know you mentioned you used to watch a lot. Is there anything that can come to the top of mind? Well, NYPD Blue is not on anymore. It was on mm -hmm. many decades ago, but that's a show Alan and I loved so much. It was just you know, a New York cop show. And movie, um, I think Miracle on 34th Street. Beautiful. It's my favorite New York City movie. Yes. Okay. Thank you. And uh, favorite New York subway line? Oh, the the it's the uh, the one, two, or three, the Seventh Avenue line. Perfect. That's my line. The red line. The red line. Yes. Yeah, is it the red line? Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. I, favorite New York Park? Central Park. Favorite weekend getaway from New York City? A Long Island. And one word to describe New York? Beautiful. Number one tip on how to live your best life in New York City? Be honest. I love that. Absolutely love it. Again, thank you so much, Marissa. I have enjoyed our conversation. Appreciate you. Thank you so much. I really have also, you, you're great. You have great energy for the city and for the project. And, and it's just been a joy talking to you. Thanks for tuning in to Gossip Nista. Your support means the world. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please be sure to hit the subscribe button and share this podcast with your friends. Can't wait till next week's episode. Follow along on Instagram at Gossamista to get my latest New York happenings. But if you live and breathe New York City like I do and want even more, go to our website at gossipnista.com, explore, and subscribe to our newsletter to get insider tips first. Lastly, if you have any questions and or scoop on the city, you can email me at gossipnista at gmail.com. Until next time, you know you love me. XOXO, Gossip Nista.